If you want to take your Bibles and turn, we'll be in 1 Samuel 22. Back in 1 Samuel. another detour into a couple more psalms because David just seems to keep writing them as we go through, <laughs> but uh, I think we should keep on moving in 1 Samuel. The world we live in is not safe. E ever since the entry of sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3, the human experience is one that's been characterized by suffering, by pain, and ultimately by death. And we might be tempted to think as Christians that we get some kind of stay or exception or exemption from, from this order of the world, which is precisely what prosperity teachers teach. So if you tune in to Benny Hinn or Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen, they're going to tell you, you can have your best life now. I was talking to Chris yesterday. I said, I sure hope this, this is not my best life. <laughs> I hope there's something better than, than all of the pain that we experience in this life. They're, they're selling you a bill of goods. Everybody that's watching, everybody that's tuning into that, everybody that's sending them money still has pain and suffering, and everyone around them still ultimately dies, and they will too. Healing now, prosperity, material wealth now, they tell you, just have faith. But of course, that's not actually what Jesus promises. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said to his disciples, In this world, you will have tribulation. This expectation of worldly trouble, of tribulation, has been the mark of Christianity all the way through. You probably remember the words of, of John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace, where he says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and safe will, and, and grace will lead me home. Not safe will lead me home. Grace will lead me home. Grace has already brought me through many dangers, toils, and snares, and it will continue to do so. Where then do we turn for that kind of amazing grace? So we turn to 1 Samuel 22, and we're going to read the first six verses. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hareth. So as we pick back up in, in our story here in 1 Samuel, you'll remember that David in 1 Samuel 21 has been in Gath because for some reason he thought going to God's enemies was a good plan for safety. And the plan backfires, and he ends up having to plead insanity, as it were. He starts drooling, letting the spit run down his beard, scratching the walls like he's crazy. And Achish, the king of Gath, is disgusted 
by David's behavior, and he tosses him out of the royal presence. And in this process, this acting insane, David, David is saved. God saves him through this craziness. So now, since David is no longer welcome in Gath, he departs and heads for the cave of Adullam, which is about 16 miles east of Gath. And once, once he arrives in the cave, the word of his presence leaks. I'm just going to turn this thing off and yell. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with that. So, this is old school for me. <laughs> we can hear you. Okay, as long as, as long as you can hear my loud mouth, we'll be okay. Everybody good? Okay. So David arrives in Adullam, but he gets to the cave, and the word of his presence leaks. And, and the cave becomes, first of all, the refuge for his family. We see that in verse 1, when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. But then the second thing that it becomes is, is a refuge for every misfit, outcast, and loser in Israel. Now, this is not exactly the army David would pick for himself. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, it says, gathered to him. So it's like you said to David, okay, you go hide in this cave and we'll build you an army, okay? And he says, yeah, could you get me all the people who are upset that they're in distress, they're bitter, all the people who can't pay their bills, all the people who are malcontents, would you please send those people to me? Like, this is not who would you, you would build your army with. Nonetheless, this is who God gives to David. And it's interesting, if you read later on, like, a number of these become known as David's mighty men. But, but that's not who they start off as. They start off as a group of misfits and outcasts. In the presence of so many of these folks, along with their willingness to defect to David at a time when everyone knows David is being hunted, it points to how far, how far Saul's prominence has fallen in Israel. Saul is the king, but there are a lot of people who are not happy with Saul being the king. He's losing his grip on the kingship. And while he's going to retain the throne until his death, things are going to get increasingly worse for him. In verse 3, we find David leaving the cave of Adullam, uh, which again was in the land of Judah, about 16 miles east of Gath, where he had fled to. And he heads down to Mizpah of Moab. Mizpah is like a mountain stronghold there in the land of Moab. And this might, again, seem strange, given that he's just left one enemy of Israel, the Philistines, and now he's heading down to another enemy of Israel, the Moabites, for, for safety. But if you will remember, in, in David's family, his father is Jesse. And Jesse, do you remember who Jesse's grandmother is? David's great-grandmother. It's Ruth, the Moabitess. You see that at the end of, of Ruth, you, we see the genealogy listed and and the great grandmother of David is Ruth who is from Moab. So it seems like David is taking his parents down here to a place where they possibly still have some connections and they're going to be safe under the king's protection. But then he heads to Mizpah to this mountain stronghold again apparently also in Moab and and it seems like a logical in an in a human sense a logical move. 
Saul is chasing David, and so he needs a place to be safe. But then we get the prophet Gad coming in. And Gad is going to be a pretty prominent figure in David's life. He's a prophet who is going to be close to David and speak to David on a number of occasions. But here is his first message, verse 5. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and get into the land of Judah. This seems ludicrous. Like Gad comes and says, Okay, here's the word from God. Get out of here. Go back to where they want to kill you. David feels safe in the stronghold. The king of Moab will keep his territory safe, and even if he couldn't keep the whole territory safe, David's got 400 men. He can hold a mountain stronghold. Andy's sitting here thinking about Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings. Like, you don't need as many people to hold that Helm's Deep as you do to attack it. Maybe Gad just knew that the Urukai were coming and they still would have taken the keep. Why would God send David back to Judah? One reason could just be the, the simple earthly reason that, that God wants David to be seen by the people as someone who is present and who is for them. And remember that there's a period of years between this happening and when David actually becomes the king. And if he were to just disappear from the scene for that whole time, we live in a small town. If somebody disappears for years and then comes back and thinks they can run things, there's, there would be a natural suspicion, right? So that, that could be part of what's going on, that, that God wants him to be seen by the people as the rightful king, and so he needs to be, even if he's having to hide in the mountains, he needs to be where they kind of know where he's at, and they know what's happening. But, but far more important and far more fundamental, in my view, is this. God is teaching David to look for another stronghold. In Psalm 57, if you want to turn there, we're going to read the first three verses. Psalm 57 says, To the choir master, according to, I love the name of this tune, Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. He says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his promise for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David was looking for a refuge, but what he needed was to see that the refuge he needed most was one he already had, the personal presence of God. God is the refuge he needed. In you, my soul takes refuge, he writes in Psalm 57.1. In the shadow of your wings, my soul takes refuge. Where do you look for refuge? What makes you feel safe? Is, is it in something that you can control, in something that you can manage? The, the ways we look for refuge in this life can be a lot like holding on to a little tarp in the middle of a hurricane. As long as you hold on to it and keep it covering you, it's definitely better than not having the tarp, right? Feeling like you have some sense of control is 
better, feels better than feeling like life is totally out of control. It's like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you know, there are things, things in life where money just answers everything. Like having more money, having more security, like in an earthly sense, yeah, it's better. But what happens when you lose your grip on that little tarp and the gale force winds of life rip it away? Whose wings will shelter you then? Brothers and sisters, we must flee to the Lord for our safety. David writes, again from the cave in Psalm 142, verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. David looks out and he says, here's what I need most in the land of the living, in this, in this world, here's what I need most, God. God is what I need most. The reason we need an eternal refuge, an eternal God for our refuge, is that this world is full of trials, and many, many antichrists are coming, to borrow John's language from 1 John 2. So we turn to verses 6 through 19. The story shifts from David, and it focuses back in on Saul. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. It's always ominous when he's got his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me and the son of Jesse, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait? as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time I, that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, you must surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. 
both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So as the story, the narrative turns back to Saul, we find a pretty sorry scene. Saul's back home at Gibeah. He's sitting under a tree and he's whining about how hard life is for him. Why don't you any of you love me as much as you should? What, what favors has David done for you that you all treat me so mean? Why does nobody feel sorry for me? It's like in uh, Robin Hood, the Disney movie, and King John sitting there sucking his thumb. That's kind of how I imagine Saul right here. And into this pity party walks a character from the previous chapter, from chapter 21, Doeg the Edomite. One of the things that the author surely wants us to notice about Doeg is that he is an Edomite. Every time his name is used, it spells out that he's an Edomite, which is to say that he's a descendant of Esau, not of Jacob. He's not a part of the people of Israel, yet he's been given this role in the kingdom as the chief of Saul's herdsmen, and now he's going to serve as a chief counselor and henchman to Saul. The people of Israel back in chapter 8, they wanted a king like all the other nations. And now they have a king like those nations who not only takes his cues, but also his counsel from those surrounding nations. If you remember in chapter 21, verse 7, we read that when David was visiting Ahimelech, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And it seemed when we read through that, like it was just, what a weird fact to throw into the story. It seemed out of place. But the author is dropping us a hint that this is going to be significant later on. And now we see the significance. Doeg is going to rat out David and Ahimelech. So after Doeg spills the beans on David's visit to Ahimelech at Nob, Saul summons the entire family of Ahimelech to himself. And upon bringing him in, Saul essentially accuses Ahimelech of sedition against the crown. As you might imagine for someone in Ahimelech's shoes, someone who considers himself a loyal servant to the king, this catches him off guard. Verse 14, and who among all your, like the, the accusation is you helped David and that's something I'm angry at you for. And Ahimelech's scratching his head going, but who's your most loyal servant? Who, who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Your son-in-law, the captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house. This is not the first time I've helped him out. But let not the king impute anything to his servant. He's like he's saying, I helped him out, and he's your son-in-law, he's your right-hand man. You should be rewarding me for this, or at least okay with this. Why are you angry at me. If there's something going on between you guys, how was I to know that? We might paraphrase, since when is serving your most loyal servant a disloyalty to you? <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on between you, but my hands are clean. But Saul is utterly beyond reason at this point. He doesn't seem to care about the obvious truth of Ahimelech's statement, and instead he orders him and all the other priests to be killed. And then there seems like there's this little ray of hope at the end of verse 17 where the servants of Saul, those gathered around him, like, no, 
We're not going to kill the priests of God? Are you crazy? They, they see the insanity and apparently are happier to face the wrath of God, or to face the wrath of Saul than they are to face the wrath of God for killing all the priests, which is it's a hopeful happening, but then right away, verse 18, there is Doeg the Edomite again. As I read chapter 22 this week, I just kept associating Doeg with Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. If you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, he's like this counselor to King Theoden, and he's just this slime ball of a character. And, and that's, that's how Doeg comes across. He's, he's just that person who makes you want to vomit every time they enter the scene. Doeg not only follows the command to kill Ahimelech and the other priests, 85 people in all, but then he takes it even further. He goes to Nob and slaughters their animals, their family. He destroys all the evidence of their property and their lives. I think Tim Chester offers a, a helpful comment here that on, on Doeg doing this at the order of Saul. Here is the terrible irony, the sign of how far Saul has fallen. In chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, God told Saul to conduct a holy war against the Gentiles. Now, in 22, verses 18 and 19, Saul tells a Gentile to conduct a holy war against God. Saul has set himself up against the Lord's anointed, against the Messiah or the Christ. Saul has become an antichrist figure in this narrative. 1 John 2.18 tells us, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have read that antichrist, so like the antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Anyone who sets themselves up as the one to be worshipped or who demands unflinching loyalty is an antichrist. The seed of the serpent seeking to strike the heel of the seed of the woman. How can one be safe from the Antichrist to come, the Antichrist who are present? Flee to the true Christ, to the Lord's anointed. That's what we see at the end of this chapter. Verses 20 and following say, But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. So we find out in verse 20 that, that Doeg the Edomite was not completely successful in his evil mission to wipe out the priests of God. One son of Ahimelech, Sabiathar escapes to David, and when he comes to David and relates the events that took place, David is clearly contrite over his culpability in the death of the priests and the people of Nob. And I think this just reiterates what, what we said back when, when David lied to Ahimelech. I think he was in the wrong. You know, he should have let Ahimelech know that, hey, Saul is actually out after me, and helping me out could really cost you. He, he might have thought that lying to him was giving him plausible deniability, was keeping him safe, but it didn't. And, and so David says, I have occasion. It is, it's my fault. It, I am responsible for the death of all these people. But then he also makes this curious statement. 
Andy didn't think it was curious. I found it curious when we were reading it. Verse 23 says, Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he, he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. So Saul is after Abiathar for one reason and one reason only, that he is connected to David. That's why, that's why Saul wants him killed. And yet as David, yet David says, Fear not, with me you are safe. In, in this statement, I think we find an enormously important principle. Being identified with the Lord's anointed may land you in a world of earthly trouble. But it's the only place you're actually safe. This is a principle that, that the importance of which I, I don't think can be overstated. We're living through, in, in our culture in the West, a giant shift. It, really, it's already taken place. It's still taking time to trickle down to where it's fully felt at our, our level, but, but the shift has taken place. The, the, where Christianity, or some form of Christianity at least, used to be seen as the dominant culture, where even if the majority of people weren't believers, just like the framework through which people thought and saw the world was, was one where if you were a genuine believer, you were trying to live biblically and say things that were true to Scripture and live and practice a biblical ethic, that the culture would see those beliefs and practices and, and either just be okay with them, like whatever, that's what they do, it's not what I do, but it's what they do, it's okay. Or they would positively applaud them, like that's a good thing to do. Now that wasn't true in every case, but like in a broad, broad structural way it was true. But the shift that's taking place, taken place in large part, is that we're now a culture where those same practices and beliefs, being genuinely identified, clearly identified with Christ, is seen not even as neutral, but as actually socially negative or evil. And this, this has been a long time in the making, so I just finished a, a book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where historian Carl Truman, he traces this back. He says you could go back further, but his, he picked his starting point with Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century. I mean, he's right in the middle of the 1700s, you can start to trace this shift in how Western people think. It's become acutely obvious to us in our culture with the, the triumph of the sexual revolution in the past decade. And I think a lot of Christians are like Ahimelech before Saul. How did, how did this thing that used to be seen, like my views, my stance, my belief, that were seen as at least normal-ish 20 years ago, now all of a sudden I'm a bad guy? Like, what's going on? We've been caught flat-footed by, by the changes in our culture. But being a Christian has almost always, across time and history, meant being an outsider, being a cultural misfit, being someone who is looked upon with suspicion by the world. Being tied to Jesus means that we might get treated like Jesus. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, 
the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But if that sounds like doom and gloom and defeatism, it isn't. Because this, this is the good news. Jesus always wins. Always. That, that verse that we quoted earlier, John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation, finishes with Jesus saying this, but take heart, have joy, be of good cheer, people of God, because Jesus has overcome the world. Not he will overcome the world in the future. He has overcome the world. Even though we wait to see that worked out in its fullness, it's as good as done. He, it's so certain that even there before the cross, Jesus speaking in the utter, upper room, he's able to say, he speaks of it in the past tense. It's so certain. Which means that there is no safer place to be than at his side. No better position to be in than fighting his battles with him. No better refuge in the time of storm than with the Christ. The, the greater son of David is already seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3. David learned at the beginning of our text that the only true safety was to come from looking to God as his strong tower and refuge. In the middle of our text, an antichrist figure rises up against the people of God, and in the end of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, Abiathar finds that the only true safety to be found is in fleeing to the side of the Lord's anointed, fleeing to the Christ. Have you taken refuge in Jesus Christ with a capital C? Do you find your identity in being tied to him? In this world, that identification may cause you troubles, but take heart because he has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father God, you sent your son into this world because you loved the world so much that whoever believed in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Lord, we all on our own are headed for perishing, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Lord, would you, would you help us to see that in Christ there is safety? You will keep us just as safe and as welcome as you want us to be in this world. And you will keep us safe eternally in the one who died for us, the one who gives us new life, the one who promises us eternal joy and working for you forever. Well, what a gift, Father. Help us to, to take joy in, in, in the road that you set before us. For the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross, despising the shame, not even thinking about the shame, despising it as if it was nothing compared to that joy. Endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of God. Lord, that you, you promised, we, we read in Revelation here a couple of weeks ago, that those who endure will be given thrones and crowns with Christ. Uh, we, we can't even fathom what that's like. 
but we know that the only safe place to be in this world and the only hope of life to come is in him. And so we ask that you would give us the faith that we need day in and day out to keep walking with Jesus. We ask in his precious name. Amen.